Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Butlers podcast. I am Mike Watkins, and with me, as always, is my good friend and business partner, Matt Burke. Hello. And each week, we try and bring you an intellectually honest discussion about news and events affecting Bitcoin. If you like our content, please like and subscribe. We would be most appreciative. So the question we get more than any other by far is, should I buy Bitcoin? Or should I buy Bitcoin now? And we never tell people to buy Bitcoin or not to buy Bitcoin. What we always tell people is to simply study Bitcoin. And when you study Bitcoin, you're going to learn about a number of subjects. And that, that knowledge that you're going to gain from that process is invaluable. So some of the things you learn about with Bitcoin, obviously, are monetary economics, history, particularly the history of money and how money changed over time, politics, technology, of course, energy, and how energy is used, and what kind of energy Bitcoin uses, and also, surprisingly, philosophy. So first up is monetary economics. Matt, you have a background in accounting. You have a, a, a CFO business. Uh, what are some of the things that you learned that maybe some things that surprised you uh, when you started studying the monetary economics surrounding Bitcoin? Well, I think um, the thing that I found most interesting was kind of the idea of time preference. Um, and when you look at the different kind of schools of thought in economics, um, there is kind of a, a sliding scale of, of how you view um, the value of something immediately versus the value of something far in the future. And when you look at the evolution of monetary policy and the economy over you know, the past several hundred years, you start to realize that we've gone from a society that um, had a lower time preference. I'm sorry, a, yeah, a lower time preference. Um, meaning that they didn't need everything immediately. It wasn't an instant gratification society. Um, people were able to, to save money for the future. Um, their money held value longer. But over time, as we've moved away from really sound money, um, that's forced a much higher time preference, meaning that if your money is going to be worth less in the future, you're more, uh, you have more incentive to spend it today versus down the road. So I think that when you start to understand Bitcoin and you understand the, uh, the fact that there is only a limited number of Bitcoin that will ever be available, um, you start to understand like how that plays into your time pre preference and why saving is really an important part of the economy that's kind of been washed away a bit over the years. Yeah, they've actually, I think in a lot of ways, de-incentivized savings. Absolutely. Especially when you're talking about just, you know, the the expansion of the money supply um, eroding your purchasing power, that by definition means that your money is worth less tomorrow than it is today. So if it's worth more today, then you might as well spend it today when it's worth more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I learned, which will tie into this, was that I didn't realize that there were essentially two schools of thought in economics, because even though I also, I have a, you know, a business background, I have a degree in accounting, 
I, I didn't really, and, and I actually liked economics when I learned in school is one of the few things I actually kind of liked, but uh, I didn't realize that there were Keynesian economics and mm -hmm. Austrian economics. I never learned that there were two different schools and, and on your study of Keynesian economics, I don't want to get into it all here. You realize that it's not, it was basically a bad idea. And all of a sudden it was adopted universally. And that is the system that we have that rules most of the world right now is Keynesian economics, which includes money printing and uh, a high time preference and high debt loads and things like that. Right. And, and and as you're talking, you know, I'm looking at this slide and and really you're really talking about at least the, the top three, you know, monetary economics, history and philosophy. They all kind of go together in this sense. Um, I think that, you know, by studying Bitcoin, you have to understand more about these things in order to understand what the value of Bitcoin is. Um mm -hmm. And, you know, politics is, a, is an interesting one because you it does play into it and not just from the standpoint of, you know, regulation and, and laws around uh, different financial aspects of society, but also this whole idea of um, of time preference and money printing. And when you have a political system um, that is able to print money at will and the money is only as good as the government that's backing it, it, it really does become a bit of a, of a political issue as well. Um, the energy and technology, I think, are, are, are also really interesting aspects of Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, those are more of the, uh, I would say, scientific aspects of Bitcoin. And these are more of the kind of, uh, you know, liberal arts uh, side of, of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Well, I would almost say that if you looking at what we have there, you could a lot of these blend together, like you said, like history, monetary economics and politics definitely blend together. The philosophy part, it bleeds over a bit for sure. Uh, going back to the monetary economics, I'd like to get back there. Another thing I learned, which I think might surprise some people is. When you study Bitcoin, you learn how money is made. Actually, let me take a step back from that. You learn the history of money. Mm -hmm. You learn what what was used as money in like basically you know, prehistoric times, all the way through modern sure. times. Yeah, you had you know anything that that was perceived to be rare um, mm -hmm. could have been money. You had um, teeth and shells and uh, animal skins, all kinds of, mm -hmm. you know, rudimentary things that were used um, as opposed to the barter system, which I thought was, that's also a very interesting aspect of, of mon monetary systems is that, mm -hmm. you know, you're, all you're really doing by having money is uh, allowing people to not have to coincidentally need the same thing. So, you know, I love that example. If, if I'm an apple farmer and you're a chicken farmer and you need apples, that's only good if I need chickens. Right. Right. Or eggs. So money was created to be able to transfer value of things um, between parties without, without them, you know, having to offer a specific good or service that you may not need. Agreed. So tell me if you agree with this statement. 
that you cannot understand Bitcoin unless you understand the history of money. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Uh, and, and when you understand the history of money, then you can see how Bitcoin fits into that. But if you don't have just just I'm just looking at these slides here, if you don't have that one piece of just the, the complete history of money, and it doesn't have to be the deepest history of money, you just have to know, you know, how things shifted. Um, it's also helpful to know about, you know, the Bretton Woods agreement. And sure. how gold the standard and gold right. standard, right. So there, there are a number of things there. I don't think we're going to go into them on this episode, but <clears throat> Uh, but I, I just think that it's impossible to understand Bitcoin without under, understanding that part. And most people don't want to do uh, a significant amount of study. They don't want to go into these different areas just to figure out if they should buy Bitcoin or not. And we understand that most people will not do it. However, I think that maybe the, the point here is that uh, by studying Bitcoin, whether you buy it or not, you will significantly improve your understanding of how the world around you works. Yeah, it, it increases your knowledge in, in all of these areas. Um, and you don't have to be an expert in any of them. Um, but, you know, if you decide to study Bitcoin, then you're going to learn more about all of these things and, and many others as well. But, you know, for example, the on the philosophy side of things there, you know, that's an interesting one because that can get... Um, really esoteric. There are mm. plenty of people out there. Um, you know, you see them on Twitter and various podcasts talking about, you know, some of these more uh, kind of obscure ideas around Bitcoin and how Bitcoin really might um, change the world. And, and in many ways, I think Bitcoin can change the world. Um, I don't know that, you know, I'm on board with some of those, those, thinkers that that really view it as you know the key to world peace and that kind of thing i mean i thought that's maybe a little bit aspirational but mm -hmm. if you at least understand where they're coming from you're going to have a better understanding of you know some of the different schools of thought um around how society works and how people live together because realistically you know money is an integral part of how people interact with each other um, you know, even and both personally and professionally, I mean, there's everybody that you are in contact with, uh, at some point in time, you're going to do something that involves money, whether that's, you know, you, you buy two concert tickets for us to go to a concert together and I got to pay you back for one, or, you know, I go to the grocery store and ask you if you need something and you owe me money, whatever it is there, whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, any person, you know, or any professional setting, there is typically some use of money involved. So it really is um, kind of fundamental to how humans interact. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. And I was just, uh, I thought that's a really good point. I was just thinking through that as you were talking that almost every single person that you know, I, I would say this, almost every person you've, you would text with on a regular basis, you've exchanged money with at some point in time. Right. And, and so to take that example, you know, down the Bitcoin path, um, you know, if, if I owe you money for a concert ticket, chances are today I'm going to, I'll either give you cash or send you a Venmo or Zelle or whatever, um, cash app, whatever, any of these applications that you can use that seamlessly allow you to send money from, you know, my bank to your bank or from my account to your account. 
Um, in a Bitcoin world, there is no intermediary. I just take some of my Bitcoin and I send it to you. And now I have less Bitcoin and you have more and nobody else has to be involved in that transaction. So, you know, the way that you think about interacting with people could be changed drastically depending on how much of a Bitcoin standard we move towards. Mm -hmm. That's something I think a lot of people don't really understand before they get into studying Bitcoin is how there's a gatekeeper involved most of the time that you move money from one person to another. Now, if you have cash, there's no gatekeeper, but you have to be physically present, right? I take it from my hand, put it in your hand, and I move that money from me to you. But if you're not physically present, there's always some kind of a gatekeeper, usually a bank. But with Bitcoin... Sorry, I think I cut out there for a second. That's okay. I was just saying that there's always some kind of gatekeeper, unless I'm giving you cash. Unless I put cash from my hand into your hand, there's some kind of gatekeeper there. Right. And 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 that's, you know, going back to the monetary economics, when you have the different attributes of money, um, you know, what makes good money. Cash is, is actually pretty good money. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's fungible. It's... Uh, you know, nobody can really stop me from giving you cash. Um, obviously, there are laws you have to follow when you're doing anything financially. But besides that, you know, it's uh, there are kind of different degrees of how good a money something is. Gold, for example, over the years has been great money with a few really big flaws. The biggest one being it's very hard to move. Um, so, you know, if I want to give you uh, a gold bar, then that's not really going to be as convenient as me giving you, uh, you know, a stack of hundred dollar bills. Right. Uh, um, go there are a couple of things that I think really came up for me and I'm just going through my head of just the things that I personally learned that surprised me during this study. And the study never ends. You have to, if you think you could study it, and get it all under your belt and just move on. You can't. I mean, all these things require, uh, well, one, you should always be humble to, to enough to, to think that there's always more to learn. But also, as you start to learn more and more about these subjects, you realize just how much you don't know. It's one of those things, sure. I guess, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. But a couple of things that really struck me that I didn't know, and I thought I was a pretty educated person. I mean, I have a uh, uh, Series 65. I'm a registered investment advisor. I've been involved with the markets for 25 plus years. Uh, I have a degree in accounting. So on paper, I look like someone that should really know these things. <laughs> but one of the things that really surprised me is that when you put your money in a bank, it's no longer your money. You have you you essentially right. have it's it's an asset to the bank and it's essentially just an IOU to you. You know, we, we grew up thinking that, no, my money's in the bank. Like, that's a vault. I'm taking it to a safe right. place. And these wonderful people are going to protect my money for me. And then you find out that, well, once you deposit that money, it's not really yours. And that's why you have to ask for their permission to get it out. And there are times they're going to tell exactly. you, no, you can't get it out. Um, uh, another thing that I, I learned on this journey was how loans create money. So I always well, thought yeah. that if, yeah, so I always that, thought that if you had like, go, sorry, go ahead. 
No, I was going to say that's really the main way that money is created is through through banks lending lending out money. So I, I always I could swear that when I was in college learning about this, that the idea was that someone would deposit, let's say, $100,000 in the bank. And then the bank can then lend out part of that money. Like I, I essentially give the bank money to lend. Right. But that's not how it works. And it gets even, we can, we can kind of go off down a, on a tangent here, but essentially what happens is that, and correct me if I'm getting any part of this wrong. If you put a hundred thousand dollars in the bank, the bank can now lend out $90,000 based on that hundred thousand you deposited. Mm-hmm. But when they lend you ninety thousand, they're actually creating ninety thousand new dollars. Correct. Which I think is there- kind of mind blowing for some people. It just new money gets created from that, and then it goes further and further because when that person is lent ninety thousand dollars, they can deposit in the bank. Yeah, because that could be lent out to somebody who's then lending it out or banks lend to each other and then they loan right. out. And so you, you get this, this kind of ripple effect where um, you're literally printing money out of thin air. And that's really one of the biggest ways that, that true inflation happens, monetary inflation, not the cost of things going up necessarily, but, but the, you know, more dollars chasing the same number of goods and services is, is the result of banks, you know, doing this fractional reserve lending where they can basically hold a small portion of what you deposit in reserve 10% and lend out the rest. But realistically, they're not really, they're just making that 90,000. Right. So let me run this by you and get your thoughts on it. So let's just say, let's use numbers that are are a little bigger so they can be more realistic for this example. Let's say you deposit a million dollars in the bank and you deposit the million dollars and I want to buy a, a million dollar house. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to put down 10%. I'm going to put down a hundred thousand dollars and the bank is going to lend me $900,000. Okay. So the bank lends me $900,000. I buy the house. I guess we didn't have to start with such an expensive house, but <laughs> oh well. Uh, so the, the bank, okay. yeah. Uh, so the bank lends me $900,000. I now buy the house. I live in the house. I move my family into the house. All right. And I owe the bank 900,000. You are owed a million dollars from the bank because you had deposited there. Mm -hmm. So a month after I move into my house and we have no relation to each other in this example, you decide you want to spend your million dollars on a uh, fancy fishing boat. Okay. So Mm -hmm. you withdraw your million dollars from the bank or you wire your million dollars to Viking boats, right? And you buy a million dollar fishing boat. So now you've got a million dollar fishing boat and I live in a million dollar house with 900,000 in debt, but the bank has none of your money anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's how that money, that's an example I think of how that money gets created. And you can see that in that example where when those transactions happen, the bank is still owed 900000 but 
Um, your money has nothing to do with that. And the money that they used to, to quote, give that loan to me. Right, to justify the loan, right. Right, to justify it is no longer there. Mm -hmm. So that was something that I thought was really, uh, I kind of blew my mind when I first understood that. Um, and then one other thing that I really learned from this, which goes towards the, was really the history of central banking and mm -hmm. how that works, particularly the Federal Reserve in the U.S., which that is part history and part politics. You know, those two things certainly emerge yeah. there. And, and you realize how, and by the way, there's a great book called The Creature from Jekyll Island. I recommend anybody who's interested in the subject. Um, it's a great book. I cannot think of the author's name off the top of my head. We'll, we'll pull that up in I'll a minute. Find it, yeah. But um, uh, he, he's given some talks on it, and there are some videos you can watch on YouTube that are about an hour, hour and a half long, and it's, it's certainly worth watching and understanding how the Federal Reserve came about, how that tied into politics, Edward Griffin. Um, Edward Griffin. And I think it's C. Edward Griffin. Is that right? Uh, it is G. Edward Griffin. G. Edward Griffin. Okay. So uh, when you, when you, one of the things that's really crazy about the, the creation of the Fed is that the people who created the Fed were bankers that had at the time, and the Fed was, they, they first met at Jekyll Island in 1910. But the bankers at that time had 20, between those bankers, there were like 10 of them that met in this island uh, off the coast of Georgia. Yep. They had 25% of the world's net worth at that time. Not the banks, right. the actual bankers. It was really no, quite it, it was, yeah, it was um, several very, uh, very prominent um, bankers from, from the US and from Europe um, that, just between those few people controlled an enormous amount, amount of the world's wealth. Mm -hmm. And one other thing that I learned was in 1971, how Richard Nixon. So we, we'd always learned, I, I think I actually learned this when I was in high school was that a dollar was backed by gold. Actually, mm -hmm. I know I learned that because I remember where I was sitting. I think it was like the ninth <laughs> grade. I remember, actually remember where I was sitting and that, that a dollar is redeemable for gold. So I learned that in the 80s, certainly past 1971. But there was a thing where the U.S. said, look, gold is too difficult to move around. A dollar, U.S. dollars are going to represent gold. And then in 1971, France was uncomfortable with some of the economic policy of the United States. And they said, you know what, we want to cash in our dollars for gold. And Richard Nixon said, no, that's not going to happen. We right. are we are stopping this program where you can cash in. We're temporarily, temporarily stopping this program where you can cash in your dollars for gold. And it has not been restarted since. And it was in August of 2000, yeah. uh, August of 51 years, yeah. uh, 51 years. So. And if we started poking on some of these other things, you'll find that there are a lot more areas where you just all kinds of different things that you'll learn about things that affect you and things that, that are there in your everyday life. And you realize how, 
how little you knew about things that you thought you knew about. And I don't know if, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think that it's important to understand a lot of these things because it helps put into perspective why Bitcoin can help fix some of these problems and, and mm -hmm. what's different about it. Um, you know, specifically the, the scarcity of it and the fact that the supply is very fixed and there will never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. Um, in order to understand what that means, you have to understand what it means to move away from a gold standard or to be able to, you know, create money out of thin air or print it at will, you know, based on the signing of a law. So um, all of those things, in order to understand why Bitcoin, you have to have that background. Um, and we haven't really touched on the on the two on the in the on the right here. But, you know, energy and technology, I mean, technology is a little more obvious. Obviously, we're talking about the fact that Bitcoin is an enormous computer network, um, somewhat in the same way that the Internet came about as a, you know, a decentralized network of information. Um, you can think of Bitcoin as a decentralized network of monetary value. Um, it is a network that allows you to transfer value from one place to another um, very securely and, and instantly almost. Um, so it's, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of technology and there's the whole cryptography side of it. Um, you know, how does all, how all of that works in terms of um, generating uh, the, the requirements for, for mining a block as far as the, how addresses are generated, all of that stuff, you know, is, is um, interesting technological uh, advances that have happened really, I guess, since probably the seventies, early eighties was probably when cryptography. Right. cryptography Isn't really that crazy started. that, yeah, yeah that's, that's one of the things I think is really fascinating about. It. I had that um, in my head. And that, I, yeah. What I was going to say, and obviously cryptography goes back to, you know, to the, the Turing machine, you know, and, mm. and way back in time um, in the early 20th century. But, um, but the development of it and the ability to, you know, use some of the, uh, protocols that govern Bitcoin have actually been around for quite a while. Right. That's uh, the cypherpunk movement, which I believe started around the seventies. Yep. Mm -hmm. They were, they were trying to solve this puzzle. It's like a group of really, really smart guys who are really, really good at math. Uh, and they had a vision and they, it, it, it's really amazing what this very, very small group of people did. They also fought some legal battles that, uh, there were free speech sure. issues here that you learn about. But when you when you understand that there was a cypherpunk movement going back to the 70s and that there were all these different versions of, well, people were trying to solve this puzzle of digital money, mm -hmm. right? A digital, I guess we'll just call it digital money. And there were all these different versions that people tried uh, before that that failed for one reason or another. And... And then when you see how, how Bitcoin evolved from these other previous monies, and you see what changes Bitcoin made, particularly the difficulty adjustment, mm -hmm. in sort of perfecting this idea of digital money, it wasn't one guy or one woman or even a, a team of people in, 
I guess it would have been 2008, 2007 that we've been working on Bitcoin because Bitcoin was released January 3rd, 2009. So assume they're working on it for at least a year or two, maybe more before that. That it wasn't just something that that had come about that someone had been working on for two years. It was more like 40 years. Sure. 40 years behind it of different things. Yeah, the Bitcoin white paper references some of those prior versions, mm-hmm. but um, and mm-hmm. there were um, there were different um, you know versions of this digital money that um, none of them quite put it all together the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. So um, you know, so so it was really, and I think I really do think the proof of work and the difficulty adjustment were the thing, two things that kind of came together to make mm. Bitcoin work. Um, mm, and, and some of the earlier versions had some sort of um, uh, difficulty adjustment and some earlier versions had proof of work, um, but mm. they didn't have both or didn't have the coding that allowed it to really work the way that it does. Um, mm. So there's a, a tremendous amount of you know technological advance. It's interesting though, because Bitcoin in and of itself, I mean, yeah, the computer code is is its own innovation, but so much of it is based on things that already existed at the time that it came out. Um, it just, you know, kind of crystallized in a way that that let it all come together and work. So that that's anyone who's interested in technology and the history of technology, you know, there's a lot there as well. Um, mm-hmm. And then lastly, energy, you know, we, I, I, I always say we end up talking about energy at some point because that's one of the biggest uh, things that people like to, to complain about with Bitcoin is its perceived energy footprint. But um, in order to really understand how Bitcoin might or might not be a good use of energy, you really have to understand energy itself and, and how it works. Um, in terms of the actual energy markets, the energy grids. I mean, you know, when you look at the overall uh, generation of energy on the planet, and then you look at how much energy Bitcoin uses and how that compares to the amount of energy that was that is otherwise wasted, um, you know, the case that Bitcoin is an un, uh, unwise use of energy starts to go away very quickly. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And then it also, you know, in the non-Bitcoin arena, it lets you understand a lot of, you know, different energy um, sources. And, you know, you've got this idea that we're just talking about this, you know, that electric vehicles are going to be such a better use of energy. Well, you know, electric vehicles are charged using electricity that's by and large powered by fossil fuels. So, you know, to say that this is going to move us away from fossil fuels is a really big stretch at this point. Um, and then on top of that, the amount of environmental destruction that has to happen in order to, you know, mine lithium and cobalt and other, uh, rare earth minerals that you need to make, you know, the batteries and the, and the technology for electric cars or for, um, battery powered, uh, you know, equipment is, uh, it's, it's pretty devastating in the places where we're, you know, you see lithium being mined and cobalt and things like that, that are, uh, it's destructive. So to understand that I think is, is important to also understand how that plays into uh, Bitcoin contextually. Mm-hmm. And if you understand energy and understand how it's very difficult to store energy, like your power company doesn't store energy, 
it sends it out and it can only travel a certain number of miles. I don't know what that number of miles is, but I don't think energy electricity can travel much more than 500 miles and it could be much less. Yeah. It that. starts to dissipate and, you know, in order for it to travel far, it has to be, um, it has to be on a, on a really powerful uh, mm. transmission system. So um, the ability for Bitcoin to scoop up excess energy um, when it's not, in demand is something that, you know, for anyone who says that Bitcoin is environmentally unsound or that it uses too much energy, I would say the opposite is true, that Bitcoin is actually a great way to stabilize energy and balance out uh, the demand for energy uh, in terms of creating, you know, flexible supply that can be turned off and on at will. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that if used correctly, Bitcoin is one of the best things for energy. A and I, I would even say if, if executed correctly, uh, Bitcoin is something particularly good for the environment. You know, they're doing all the stuff with, uh, with oil exploration, with the, uh, the methane flares. Mm -hmm. It is methane, right? Yes. And so they're they're basically taking these these emissions that would otherwise be a pollutant. They're converting those emissions into localized energy, and they're using that localized energy on the spot from those emissions mm -hmm. to power up computers that run the Bitcoin mining software. And so you do two things there. You stop all those emissions from going into the atmosphere, which is great. And you give the people who are running the mining rigs a way to have additional revenue. Yeah, there's they have an incentive to do it. And interestingly, um, the, uh, mm -hmm. the Inflation Reduction Act that just uh, went past the Senate that still isn't mm -hmm. signed into law, but... Um, appears that it will be, has actual subsidies in it for oil and gas companies to reduce their, um, their methane emissions um, or really any emissions that are coming as a result of their, you know, their oil and gas mining. Um, so the, um, I've seen a lot of things fl flying around that, you know, now you're giving the, if there's subsidies to cut back on those emissions, you're now giving, you know, oil and energy companies an incentive to mine Bitcoin. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and when we put, when you put all these things together, uh, you find that you really just have a better understanding of how the world around you works. And that knowledge is a very, very powerful and useful thing, particularly for younger people, right? If I was, let's just say that I was good, just going off to college or maybe just graduating college. And I had an understanding of all these things, which we kind of went to college for, and I didn't, right. I didn't really get there. Actually, I didn't get much of any of these things there. Um, I don't know what life would be like understanding how the energy grid works and how it needs to be localized. I, I don't know how I would use the, the other information of how money works and how inflation works and, and how money's created. And I don't know how you use that to your 
advantage because I didn't have that until really just uh, fairly recently, like a few years ago. Yeah. And, and then you realize that there's, like I said before, whatever you've learned, you're just scratching the surface. There's always significantly more to go. Um, but we do have some, I know you made a slide here, some really great resources that I think we should share yeah. with people. And, and you know, Unless I made the, here. no, I, I was getting ready to, to go there and I made this slide. Um, and it was really just the things that came to my mind as far as where I like to go to, um, to learn about Bitcoin on an ongoing basis and where I've learned the most from it in the past. Um, and so, you know, starting the sailor.org, um, the Sailor Academy has a class called Bitcoin for Everybody. It's a 12-hour class. Um, it's pretty in-depth. It's, you know, probably not where you would want to start to learn about Bitcoin. I would say um, it's where you would go once you've got a basic understanding and really want to know more. Um, I tell most people the first thing they should do is read the Bitcoin Standard um, by... Uh, Safedine Amus. It's a it's a brilliant book. It really lays out a lot of the concepts that we just kind of touched on in a really uh, intelligent way, and it helps you understand money. What I always what I tell people my favorite thing about the Bitcoin Standard is I think the first eighty percent of the book do, probably mm -hmm. doesn't mention the word Bitcoin or doesn't talk about Bitcoin. It right. really talks about. Um, money and history and economics and society. And it's only when you get to the end that it really, you know, makes the case for Bitcoin. Um, so if you're interested in that kind of historical background um, of why we think Bitcoin is such great money, uh, that's a really good place to start. And then I maybe didn't lay these out in the best order. Um, so if you're listening, it's less confusing. But the uh, layered money is probably... The, the second book I would recommend, I, I think layered money and the Bitcoin standard somewhat go hand in hand. Um, mm -hmm. But layered money really does help you understand some of the, you know, more uh, relevant monetary frameworks um, and how you have these different layers. And it gets more into, you know, how does the credit system work? How does central banking work? Um, and how do all these other kind of payment networks um, work? Um, and I agree with you. I think the river learning. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I, uh, I was saying, I just, I agree with you. I think the place to start for everyone is a Bitcoin standard without a doubt. It's an absolute masterpiece. Um, even if you don't want to buy Bitcoin, I just think it's a very fascinating read. And I think layered money, even though it's by a different author is a great companion to it. It's almost like uh, a Reese's peanut butter cup, but you know, chocolate and peanut butter <laughs> yeah. together. They just, that, those two things work really well together. And it's, um, uh, that's a great combo, a really great combo to get started. Yep. Um, the other thing um, up on the top, right, the river financial Bitcoin learning center. Um, I tell a lot of people to start there. Um, if they know nothing about Bitcoin, have zero interest, you know, say now nah, i'm not i don't want to read a book about bitcoin yet mm -hmm. um it's a it's just a really well laid out um kind of primer it goes through everything from what is bitcoin kind of how does it work 
technically? How do you buy it? How do you um, use it? You know, how do you send it from one place to another? All the all the different things that you really need to know if you're going to be knowledgeable about it. Um, I, I do like that, and I think um, Swan Bitcoin, um, which is you know River and Swan are both Bitcoin only exchanges. Um, Swan is actually just a buying platform wherever you can buy and sell Bitcoin. But um, the the Swan website, uh, Swan Signal has a lot of really great articles, some really br brilliant contributors there. Um, you know, everything from the technical side of things, uh, the economic aspects of it. Uh, there was a great article about inflation that Stephen Lubka wrote recently. Um, but um, it's a little more uh, up to date, I would say, because it's more timely concepts that are that are being posted here. But I, I like I like that as well um, as a resource. Um, and then if you don't want to read, if you want to listen, I tell people to start with Peter McCormick and what Bitcoin did. Um, I think that he's done an amazing job kind of keeping up with the space. He's just a really good interviewer, I think, is what it comes mm -hmm. down to. Um, I, you know. I'm not the first person to say it. I'm sure he's kind of like, I view him as like the Joe Rogan of Bitcoin. Um, he's mm. just a really curious person who asks good questions and wants to learn. And, um, and I enjoy his podcast a lot. Hmm. Uh, one thing I'll add to, to what you say, cause I, I fully agree with everything is that the, the sailor.org Academy, their course on Bitcoin is great. If you want to go deeper and you want to invest some more time, it touches quite a few different areas. And I think I got a significant amount out of that course personally. Yeah. And, and all of those, uh, here, I'll scoot back. All of these items on this chart are, are really covered in that, uh, in that course. Hmm. Um, any other, where else do you, I, I did this kind of in a vacuum. I didn't really ask you about it. I, I know you agree with most of it. Anywhere else you like to go for your, uh, Bitcoin info. I mean, we get a ton of information from Bitcoin magazine. It's a great resource. They have great articles, um, especially when it comes to adoption and, and innovation in the space. I, I read that a lot. Um, I like to listen to different podcasts or interviews and I'll just play those in the car. And they come from a number of different sources. It's usually just the, it's more of the the person that's being interviewed, but there there's so much content being created, and and I, I like to bring that up that when I, I I first got into Bitcoin in 2015, there was almost no content, and if there was content out there, it certainly wasn't the Bitcoin standard, which I think was a game changer for a lot of people. And like I say, if there was content out there, I didn't really know what it was. It, it wasn't like you have now where you can open up YouTube and get, you know, a, a significant amount of different interviews or videos that you can watch that will explain this to you is probably an overload mm -hmm. with us being one of them. Although we, we try and be a little different in what we do. So there's just a, a huge amount of content out there. I'll also add this, uh, and I'll seg use this to segue into what we're doing. Um, and while this is self-serving, it is we strive to be intellectually honest. So as long as we're being intellectually honest, I'm okay with it. You and I were talking last week, and I said I, I'm learning by listening to our our show each week, even though I'm talking in the show, and even though I'm researching to do the show 
when I actually hear the conversation that we had, because I don't know what you're going to say and what I'm going to say, I, this is all spontaneous for us. None sure. of this is scripted. And when I listen to our show, I feel like our show really helps me keep up with the evolution and adoption of Bitcoin, maybe better than any other resource I go to. And, you know, obviously we're spending, I don't know about you, I'm spending at least an hour or more per day just keeping up with all the different Bitcoin news and going oh, yeah. deeper in it. Uh, but I, I feel that the the hour or so that I spend each week actually listening back to what we talked about is is significantly beneficial. And the way I view that is that I, I kind of picture uh, someone, let's just say they're about our age, and they bought Bitcoin, they're thinking about it, or they bought a little bit, and they're thinking about getting more, whatever it is, just to keep up with where it is. Um, to know what, what's going on in the adoption cycle. I know we're about to, to jump onto one of those, even though we've had a long discussion about this. But I, I think that I would, I would put us up there as far as not learning if you should or should not buy it, but I would put us in that category of I own it and I need to keep up with what's going on with it. And uh, I don't want to- And you're excited about the potential for it. I mean, that's the thing mm -hmm. is that, it, you know, all of these things that we talk about, they're, it's all exciting stuff. And, you know, maybe not all of it is, is great news or a huge, um, you know, in terms of impact, but it's, um, it's something that, um, that's really interesting. And it's, I, you know, and that we've found to be really important, um, mm -hmm. as far as what's going on in the world today. So from that standpoint, mm -hmm. I enjoy doing that. Um, I enjoy learning about it, but the other thing I was going to say is, and, and it's, it's a good example. I do, you know, I agree with you when, when we have these discussions, I come away from it feeling like I've learned something every single time, but mm -hmm. I would also say for people that are interested in it, find other people who are interested in it and, and have conversations with them about it. I mean, some of the, you know, some of the best conversations I've had around about Bitcoin is, you know, going to a dinner with other people who are interested in Bitcoin and want to talk about it. And, and, you know, you and I go to these dinners sometimes and we, and we have friends that are, that are Bitcoin, you know, enthusiasts and like to talk about it. And we do talk about it, but I also find that, you know, more and more of the time we're talking about things other than Bitcoin that are maybe in those other, you know, uh, mm -hmm. six boxes that we were looking mm -hmm. at or, or whatnot, sure. um, because it helps, you know, the understanding of it. And so, um, so yeah, I think that, that if you are interested in it and you're, and you want to study it, um, find other people who also want to, and, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to count Twitter out either. Twitter is a great resource for mm. a lot of Bitcoin. There's a lot of noise on Twitter and there's a lot of characters on Twitter and, you know, for some people it may not be their thing, but if you can, you know, filter that out, um, there's a lot of really, uh, really solid Bitcoiners out there and a lot of great articles and videos and, you know, other resources that pop up um, that, you know, you can use Twitter as the jumping off point to find a lot of really good information. Well, speaking of jumping off points, let's jump on to one of our first adoption stories because it is, it's a doozy. Yeah, it's a big Potentially. one. Potentially. Um, BlackRock 
is going to offer Bitcoin trading um, with in a partnership with Coinbase. So BlackRock, uh, one of the biggest investment management, I think they are the biggest investment management firm in the world, $10 trillion under, under management. Um, they own a substantial amount of pretty much all of the biggest companies. Um, again, one of these institutions that is so big that this announcement itself, you know, I would imagine the genesis of it goes back many months. Um, I mean, there were there were articles over a year ago about how you know BlackRock was starting to think about. I think it was more crypto, but they were starting to look at digital currency because they were starting to see uh, demand from their investors on it. Um, so now they've come out and decided that um, that this is something that they want to offer to their their institutional clients. Mm -hmm. So. It seems to me that, well, BlackRock is in business to make money, like like all businesses. I don't think they've got um, a particular philosophy they're trying to adhere to. However, in the past, they were very anti-Bitcoin in the past, going back yeah. to about 2017. Well, uh, their and CEO you know, basically said it was just nothing but money laundering. Do you know what their CEO's name is? I find this to be kind of funny. It's not particularly deep. I just think it's kind of funny. Yeah. It's Larry Fink. Larry Fink, yeah. Right. That's just a strange name for the CEO of the world's largest. <laughs> Fink being a strange yeah. last name for the CEO of the largest uh, asset investor. Um but this isn't all good news with BlackRock. I don't really know exactly what's behind this. Obviously, there's been demand from their uh, their institutional investors, and that's great. And the fact that this may be a way for institutions to get into Bitcoin is really great because one of the things that happened, I think, around maybe April of 2020, Around April 2020, I would have told you that I, well, I know because I did say this and I did think it through, That, but I would have said that you're going to see publicly traded companies putting X amount of their treasury into Bitcoin. And by X amount, I'm going to say between 1% and 5%, depending yep. on the company. And that there would be like a stampede of companies getting in there because there would be like this, uh, I'll call it like a reputational risk if the, the CFO of these publicly traded companies did not uh, put Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Now, for context at the time, MicroStrategy was killing it with Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Tesla just bought $1.5 billion of Bitcoin to put on their balance sheet. Michael Saylor was doing the seminar where he was giving away all of the information that institutions needed in order to buy Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like we were getting this, this real momentum for these publicly traded companies and other institutions to buy Bitcoin. Yeah. But 
And, uh, and on top of that, you had a tremendous amount of money printing happening at the time through mm. all of the all of the CARES Act stuff. And um, that really, you know, led to that that big run up that I think mm. got a lot of people very excited. Mm -hmm. But something happened. I don't know what happened, but something happened and that did not materialize in the way that that I thought it would. So when you see BlackRock getting involved, and according to the the article that we have up here from Bitcoin Magazine, BlackRock serves over 1,600 institutions in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and Canada. So this is just sort of like, I mean, it's, it's they're BlackRock, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard each own a what is it like five to seven percent of every public? Yeah, they company. you know between the three of them, they probably own. 15 to 25% of every company. Yeah, it's crazy. Every company. It's really kind of crazy. <laughs> so this is big news. And what I thought was maybe bigger news and maybe not on the good side was that this didn't move the needle on the Bitcoin price at all. No, no. I think if this had really come out in, oh, let's just say 2020, maybe Bitcoin jumps up by 10% that day or something. It really didn't do much of anything uh, to move the price and also on another more negative side of this article. And we don't, I don't view this as negative news. It's just, no, it's again, still we're tell like it is. Yeah. right. Is that there's no, you don't, there's a thing in Bitcoin, not your keys, not your coins. And for these institutions that buy through BlackRock, which are just going to use uh, part of Coinbase's platform, it's yeah. called Coinbase prime. Mm-hmm. You cannot get the keys to your Bitcoin. You can't move your Bitcoin off of their system. So it's one of those things where BlackRock's like, sure, you're an institution. You want to come buy it from us? No problem. How much you want to buy? A billion dollars worth? Great. We get you set up. Well, you know, low fees to get in. We're going to custody it for you. You got nothing to worry about. Your Bitcoin is secure. We use every kind of like security protocol. There's insurance on it. You're in great shape. Except we kind of own your Bitcoin is really just an IOU and mm -hmm. you can't do anything with it except I guess can, yeah. cash out, you know, and well, you, pay can, you, but you can, there's only two things you can do with it. Once you've bought it on their plat on this platform, um, based on the article that you can keep it on their platform, um, and send it to other addresses on the platform. So there is some mm -hmm. ability to, to move it around that platform, but you know, if you're not on that platform, that that does you no good, and it's still you still don't hold those private keys, um, mm. and or you can cash it out. So it's not you know from that standpoint, it is basically paper Bitcoin. It's exposure to Bitcoin, um, and I think it kind of you know skips one of the important aspects of Bitcoin, which is the ability to self custody and have your own sovereign money. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, that's a little, that's disappointing. It's, it's, uh, it's not, I think it's ignoring one of the great benefits of Bitcoin, but at the same time, we talk about the fact that you've got to still embrace things that move towards mass adoption. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these, when you talk about 1600 institutions, I mean, you know, 
it's not, these are not just like financial institutions. These are pension funds, insurance companies, mm-hmm. family offices, you know, hospital networks, all, all types of, um, you know, municipalities that anyone that's, that's investing on behalf of others, you know, these are major, major systems that have financial investments as part of their, you know, their value. And so, um, it, it's really a lot of exposure for a lot of people. It's, you know, $10 trillion of management. Hmm. And, and I'd also say that, let's just say I am, <clears throat> excuse me, let's say I'm CFO of Apple, for example. And Apple wants to buy, Apple's got what, 200 something billion in cash. Hmm. And let's just say, just to make the math easy, they want to put, uh, 10%, so 20 plus billion into Bitcoin. Well, for Apple to do that, all of a sudden they've got to figure out a way to store it, how they're going to do it. They're going to have to deal with all these protocols. I mean, it, it, it's a difficult thing for a big publicly traded company to figure out how to store $20 billion of this, I'm going to call it newfangled asset, this digital sure. asset. But you could also just buy $20 billion from BlackRock or through BlackRock, and BlackRock's going to handle all the custody and things like that. And you're not really worried, not your keys, not your coin, if you're Apple dealing with BlackRock or any other publicly traded company or pension fund, et cetera, dealing with BlackRock. So while for an individual, I would say this is the worst idea you could ever do. Don't, if you're an individual, you need to have your, your private keys but for these institutions, this is probably great. And then for BlackRock, uh, it's pretty awesome to be able to control everyone else's <laughs> Bitcoin because, sure. you know, if, if things really got weird, it's very similar to the banks having all that gold in the bank, you know. And so it, it certainly helps BlackRock at the same time that it helps these institutions. Absolutely. I think, you know, one way to look at this is that this is kind of like, what they're offering is people who want to bet on Bitcoin as an investment, um, as opposed to, you know, people who want, who value Bitcoin as a currency or a network or a technology. Um, and so, but the, but the thing that I, that's, you know, still that I'm optimistic about with it is that, by offering that in a way they're they're saying that they believe the technology is going to continue to be you know important and grow otherwise they wouldn't feel the need to offer it as an investment mm. and one other thing to mention on this this is bitcoin only there's no ethereum there's no cardano right. any none of that stuff here yep and, and, and always, going back yeah, yeah. And going back to the start of the show and, you know, to study Bitcoin, you know, and this was the same thing with Fidelity when we talked about them last week is that this is not, they studied Bitcoin and came to the conclusion by studying it, that it's something that they needed to incorporate into what they're doing. And the same thing happened with Fidelity and Fidelity wrote a you know big paper about why Bitcoin. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, clearly you have these enormous, highly successful, um, institutions that people rely on and trust that have come to that conclusion and are now doing it. So from the standpoint of adoption, I think it's, I think overall it's a really good thing. 
Mm. Well, we'll see, we're going to see how this plays out. We're definitely going to keep a close eye on this, what, what BlackRock is doing, who's buying through BlackRock. It's it's significant. Um, I hope it's more significant than we think it is. We're just going to have to see. We're going to have to see uh, you know, how this gets adopted, how it takes off, and um, what institutions are doing it, and to what degree. Yeah. I mean, my guess is they won't be the last one to do it. No, no, no. I'm going to assume that State Street and Vanguard are going to jump in sooner rather than later. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, you want to go to the next one. Um, mm-hmm. This is in the politics world. So there's a Senate bill that would classify Bitcoin as a digital commodity. Um, this was that concept was um, in the Lummis and Gillibrand bill that was proposed um, that when we talked about it kind of acknowledged that that wasn't really going anywhere. But my understanding of this, and tell me if if this is your understanding as well, is that this is really a bipartisan uh, committee-based bill that um, has been the result of a Democrat and Republican senator working together to kind of figure out where Bitcoin's regulatory function should happen. And they've concluded that it should be, you know, on the, on the commodity exchange. Mm -hmm. I uh, am not a great person as far as the inner workings of government. That's really never been much of a, an area of interest to me. I think most of those people are not particularly great people. We, I think we talked about this in the other show. They, uh, they're people that manipulate atoms that like to build things and grow things. And there are people that like to manipulate people and politicians are people that like to manipulate other people. So what I see in this is really just this ongoing battle between the SEC and the CFTC. Mm-hmm. I've never, I mean, I'll be honest before I got I mean, to Bitcoin, I never heard of the CFTC before SEC. Mm-hmm. Sure. I took a couple of their tests, but um, this is just a battle to me. I, I just read it as sort of a power battle between the CFTC and the SEC and the CFTC wants to have a spot Bitcoin ETF. SEC mm-hmm. clearly does not. This is just power wrangling. I think more than anything else that uh, these government agencies sort of jockey and wrestle for power. Yeah, it's a bit of, t- of a turf war, I guess. A turf war, right? And they all want as much turf as possible, and they all want as much power as possible. So it's interesting to see it play out. Uh, Hard to to really guess where it's going, but in this in in 2022, we've seen the Lummis Gillibrand bill, right? Mm-hmm. We've seen this, and have we seen another one? I I seem to think that maybe we've well, seen there were some else. there was some language in one of the earlier versions of the uh, Build Back Better legislation um, mm-hmm. that was not really favorable um mm. and that never went anywhere and there wasn't anything like that in this last bill that that they're in the midst of passing but um but i think what's you know what i find important about this is that you know now you've got again a bipartisan group of senators saying this is something that you know if we're going to regulate it we're going to view it the same way we would you know look at a precious metal even though it's digital Mm. and and i think for the most part i you know i I think that's that's right what i don't what i think they're going to have to work through is 
to the extent that you start transacting in it and to the extent that you can use it as, you know, currency in, in other places, um, certainly create some challenges. Um, so they're going to have to, you know, exempt small transactions, um, depending on, on, you know, compared mm-hmm. to how you would treat gold mm-hmm. or silver in that case. But, um, overall, it seems like, you know, again, we say it all the time. Some people will yell and scream about Bitcoin being classified as anything and being regulated in any way, but mm. it, it has to, it has to fall under some jurisdiction. If, if the, you know, broader society in the U S is going to adopt it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll see, we'll see how that plays out, but it is significant news. Um, it's significant, not that it's necessarily going to make a difference one way or the other, but when we have something like this come out where we see this battle between the CFTC and SEC and how, because one of the problems with Bitcoin is no one knows what to do with it still. So right. this is just wrangling to try to figure out how do we even, who who's supposed to be the one in charge of this? And of course the government agencies each want to have that turf. Uh, clearly I think it might be uh, a pretty big turf to have. And, uh, We'll we'll keep our eyes on this and and follow it pretty closely. Yep. Well, uh, yeah, once we see where this bill lands, we'll we'll follow back up on another show. Um, All right. Well, speaking of uh, knowing how to use Bitcoin, the next one, this is a new device. um, And I I don't feel like we really talk about, you know, the technology and devices and software and apps and that kind of stuff very much. Um, But I thought this was an interesting one, especially in the context of, uh, what we do at Bitcoin Butlers, I mean, a lot of what we focus on is, is you know, storing your own Bitcoin, making sure that you have the right security set up for your, um, for your Bitcoin wallet. Uh, we suggest everybody uses multi-sig. Um, but this is a, a new device that has come out by, um, by CoinKite, who also made the cold card, which is a really um, innovative hardware device um you know they've called them hardware wallets i like i like signing device better mm-hmm. than hardware wallet um it's not really a wallet um all it is is the ability to gives you the ability to securely sign a transaction or a message um and so this tap signer is a signing device that looks like a credit card um we've seen other uh the, you know the nfc is the near field contact it's the same technology that allows you to tap your phone on a, a credit card machine and pay for something um you know if you're using apple pay or google pay or whatever this is the same technology you would tap it to your phone um and um and it would bring up a an app that would allow you to then um send bitcoin and and that card itself is holding your private keys and it's different than you know the the more traditional uh hardware wallets like a treasurer ledger or cold card um it's uh it's different it uses a different um security protocol for the private key it doesn't generate uh mm-hmm. a seed phrase like a, like those other devices do um it uses a different type of uh of basically password generation to secure it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, but it's also, it's an interesting evolution in the signing device. You know, one thing you could use it for is you could set it up to where, you know, it was one of the keys in your multi-sig setup and you could use that to to be one of the signatures in your multi-sig setup. And you could do what's called partially signed transactions where you could sign with that. And then, you know, somebody else could sign if they're the other holder of the key and, you know, you, it could take as long as you need for the, both of those signatures to occur or whatever. So um, it seems like a pretty convenient way to, uh, to manage a private key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we saw something like this. I even have a little prop. This is a card that we we got at the Bitcoin the conference, yeah. the Arculus. It also uses NFC. And the the thing with um the thing with these different signing devices, and I I, I agree with you. I think one of the the things that I really like, I think it was the CEO of CoinKite came up with this term signing device. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a better way to put it. I think it's much easier to understand this as a signing device. Um, is that we don't know how you're going to pay for things with your Bitcoin going forward. We don't know how we, we have some ideas how you're going to store your long term Bitcoin, which you would always want to store significant amounts and anything long term and straight up cold storage, which means. You control your private keys and there's your, your signing device is not connected to the internet in any way. That's basically cold storage. Mm-hmm. What this thing does is kind of in the middle. It's not quite hot storage, which is really convenient, which is just you have a, 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 a wallet on your phone, kind of looks like Venmo or Cash App or whatever, and you can send Bitcoin out from there. And you can do that usually by scanning a QR code. Mm-hmm. But but what a hot wall or a hot we call it a hot wallet or what is called a, a hot signing device lets you do is it lets you spend it wherever you want to go. It's not difficult mm-hmm. to do if you're you are uh, you take a trip to uh, some remote place where they don't have much of anything but they have the internet and you have cell signal there. You can you can buy a. Uh, like a rickshaw ride or something. I'm <laughs> silly things that you know you might not be able to get to. So, um, you know, a hot a hot wallet or a hot sign device lets you do that. Where a, a cold storage setup, you may not be able to buy anything for a couple of days if you have really hardcore cold storage, and that's fine. That's intentional because right. your keys are stored in different locations. So you have to go round up your your you know that the keys are the we'll call multiple sign devices that are needed. So this is somewhere in the middle and what it does, it's also an inexpensive solution. So most of the hot wallets are essentially free more or less. And you just get them on the app store. This is a $40 device. It's got a card that fits in your wallet, just like other credit cards. So it's kind of this in between. Um, and it's just a, it's just another evolution of how people are going to pay for things. I actually think that NFC is is really the future of payment. We're starting to see it. NFC is like Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, etc. And so already when I'm going to get gas, I'm using I use it actually everywhere everywhere they accept it. I'm I'm a big fan of just either using my watch or my phone to pay for something. Mm-hmm. You don't have to take your card out of your wallet. You don't have to 
deal with it. It's just, it's, it's faster. It's more convenient. So I welcome the, uh, the evolution of the signing devices to the Bitcoin ecosystem. This is just the very beginning of it. I, the thing I don't like about this is it, you don't have that 12 or it's, it's using, we're going to be kind of technical make me sound a little smarter is using BIP 32 instead of BIP 39. Right. Um, and all that really means is that instead of having 12 or 24 words that you need to, that you can use to back up your wallet, you have to go through something a little bit more complex. There's a key on the back of the card and there's, they're saying you should write down what's in the key and you can put your things together. But, but that 12 or 24 words is really genius. And, uh, this does not incorporate that. No, that doesn't it, mean um, it's not. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's not that, usable, but it's it's it is a negative to it. Yeah, and, and it is secured. I mean, and and if you go and read about it, um, even on on the Tap Signer website, they have an FAQ and talk about some of the security um, potential security risks with it. I don't think it's it's terrible. I mean, I think that I don't think I would want to have a single one of these controlling a large amount of Bitcoin. Um, mm -hmm. I think if you're using it as one multi-sig key and it's well secured, that to me is probably the safest use for it. Um, but, you know, you do have the ability to, um, to secure that card, I believe with a pin. Um, and it, in you, it also connects, you know, with software on your phone. So somebody would have to know your pin and have both the card and your phone in order to to do something with it. It's possible, but um, you know, it's not. It doesn't seem terrible as long as you're not using it to control, you know, a whole lot of Bitcoin. Hmm. Yeah, but it's it's an evolution. We're starting to see this stuff come up. There's another tap card. I forgot the name of it. We've covered before. Yep. Um, I believe that was a lightning network oh, card. If I lightning remember. network card, you know, it also yeah. uses NFC. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I think it's interesting and I would, I, we said this before, um, it would be great if the, uh, if the signing devices could be a little more user-friendly, this, this mm -hmm. seems like a step in that direction, at least compared to, uh, to the older, older models. Yeah. Well, we're going to see how that plays out. I just, I just wonder if people are, I, I think that what we'll likely see, and we have this already, is that you you have your sort of savings account and your checking account for Bitcoin. Yeah. And your savings account is going to have the super, super high security. It's like a vault, essentially. But your checking account, I think a lot of people can put that in uh, a hot wallet or hot storage device. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know if, these cards will even be needed because we'll be, you know, you have NFC built into your phone, built into smartwatches. Mm -hmm. And that's really, I think the way a lot of stuff will be done. Certainly QR code is a way to do it. You know, the lightning network works great with QR code right now. Yeah. Um, we'll have to see, just to see, but it's, um, I'm, I love to see the innovation and we need these ideas. You don't know what this idea is going to, you know, what it leads to from somebody else, sure. but, um, New signing devices, lower lower cost of entry for something that sits in between a hot and a cold. Clever. Mm -hmm. Yep. Interesting stuff. All right. Well, let's go to our next story. This is a story from Japan. Um, 
after four years, Japan is bringing back its first crypto ATM. So um, there's some history in Japan with, with this stuff. They, they've been really skeptical um, around this whole space for some time now. Mm. Well, they were, there was a, like a, they got robbed. There was a, a hack, I think in like 2018. Yeah for like $500 million. And so they, they were putting in a whole bunch of these things. And all of a sudden there was this, uh, this $530 million hack from CoinCheck. Yeah. And all of a sudden they put the brakes on that. Uh, I think I saw stat. I don't have it in front of me that there were like, how many Bitcoin ATMs there were worldwide. Hmm. Do you remember seeing that? No, I don't. It was a, it was a fairly it. fairly high number. Um, this is just Japan, I guess, back in the... I, I think this is more about Japan just being back in the, uh, the crypto news. And by the way, these ATMs are not Bitcoin only. You right. get like Litecoin on there, Bitcoin Cash, uh, yeah. a number of other things. I'd say the most important thing, in my opinion, about this article is the jurisdiction of Japan. Mm -hmm. They cut this off about four years ago, or and now they are going back into it. Right. And, and by the way, I saw at the end of last year, there were like 34,000 Bitcoin ATMs or something in that, that range mm -hmm. worldwide. That's a lot. It's mm -hmm. a lot. I mean, only a couple hundred countries, so, you know, it's... It's a fair number. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, one other thing I saw on this is the the limits on it are pretty low. Mm, um, very low. It's uh, it's it's like a hundred thousand yen per transaction, which is like seven hundred fifty dollars or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And the amount that you can transact um, per day is uh, three hundred thousand yen, so like you know twenty two hundred dollars. Yeah. So, you know, they're also just dipping their toe in the water here. They're not, they're not diving back into it. No, no, but that's how, that's how things go. And you just see, like we, we talked about the same before, like, you know, little grains of sand in different places or little dots and they will start to connect. Um, and you need, you, or, or drops of water in a bucket or a barrel, you need all these little drops. And so, um, I always like to see a return for things, whether it's yeah. Iran returning to mining or Japan returning to ATM. Uh, it's positive. Yep. All right. Now, the last one. Yeah. Uh, this is a lightning network story and um, it's uh, this is a really interesting one. I'm still kind of processing this one a little bit because I, I can't tell if I like it or not. Um but uh, so Galloy um, just raised $4 million and announced that they are going to be offering the ability to transact in U.S. dollars over the Lightning Network utilizing Bitcoin as the, as the collateral for that. So um, essentially what you would do is you would deposit a certain amount of Bitcoin I guess either I guess you send it to a Bitcoin address and and then a, a lightning channel is open up for the dollar value of that and through various 
financial derivatives and swap contracts and um, a lot of complicated financial instruments that I don't understand. Um, they are attempting to keep the monetary value of that deposit pegged to a dollar amount. So if let's just say Bitcoin is at $20,000 and you deposit one Bitcoin into their, their platform, you now have $20,000 of, of US dollars, fiat currency, but you're able to send it over the lightning network. Then, and it's backed by the Bitcoin. Well, if the Bitcoin, and then because of the swaps that they do, if the price of Bitcoin were to go up, you would actually have an unrealized loss on that investment. And if the price of Bitcoin goes down, you have an unrealized gain. So the mechanism by which they do this theoretically keeps, allows you to have the ability to keep it pegged to a dollar amount. Um, you know, I guess that in and of itself, it doesn't, this isn't an algorithmic stable coin, um, but it's also not a fully reserved, it is fully reserved, but it's fully reserved on an exchange. So, you know, if that exchange were to go under, um, you're going to have issues because, because Galloway is using that Bitcoin as collateral or as, you know, the, the funds to purchase these contracts. So it's, um, it's a complicated thing, I think, but at the same time, I, I don't totally understand it. So I want to, I want to look more into it, but what I do like about it is that it just shows a tremendous level of innovation on the second layer. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Great. this is something that um, whether or not this is, a great thing or a bad thing. I'm not ready to give an opinion on that, but what it is, is something that's innovative that's being built on lightning. Um, mm. And we've seen other things that use lightning as, you know, kind of the rails or the network to facilitate a transaction without the user having to actually hold or interact with Bitcoin. You could go and mm. today use, you know, I could send you dollars over strike and that's using the lightning network um, as the payment rails for that to happen. So, um, so I think, you know, new ways to kind of build on that technology and then, um, you know, lightning labs is doing a, a, a tremendous amount in this space as well, but, mm. you know, seeing these developments, I think um, shows that there's real, uh, there's real, technological potential for lightning to do a lot of really complex um financial things yeah i think that's I, I agree with you that's about the only positive that i see from this i i think it's a lot of potential shenanigans here mm -hmm. it's it's especially with all the crashes we've had from voyager and celsius and all this kind of stuff this kind of it's, it's not as scammy as that but it's but it's, but it's also derivatives and yeah. not your keys, not your coins. And so I just think of someone in El Salvador who saved up a thousand dollars in Bitcoin, thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin and took them, I'm going to say a year and they want to use this thing. And they, there's some kind of thing where you can have some stability with the dollars and you know, it's, it's not their keys, not their coins and something happens and, it's in someone else's custody and they lose it all. And uh, there's really no need for that at this point, but I agree with you. And that's, that's part of the, uh, I believe the system is called tarot that 
uh, mm -hmm. Lightning Labs is working on, where you can have other assets on the Lightning Network that are not straight up Bitcoin. And uh, this is this is, uh, I guess, the first company outside of Lightning Labs that's trying something. I just don't really love this this solution. Yeah, I think it's. Um... There's definite risk. There's definite, mm. I mean, they, you know, it, it, the article talks about this. I mean, there is counterparty risk for sure. Right. Um, there are, you know, and if, if any of the, any of the third parties in this equation, other than you, you know, have issues, any liquidity issues, you know, could be just a disaster in this case, yeah. you know, yeah. it could be a Celsius or Voyager type of scenario. If, um, if they start facing liquidity problems or if they're, you know, it may not even be, be this, this is what we saw with, um, with Luna was that it, it wasn't even, they were holding Bitcoin, but it was, you know, the crash of something else that caused that to spiral out of control. So it could be something if you're trusting that, uh, Bitcoin to be within some platform and that platform is also, you know, messing around with real shenanigans, it could just crater the whole thing and then your Bitcoin's gone as well. So, um, mm. so it's not even just Bitcoin risk. I think there's risk of, of other assets as well. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is like, there's these, all these dele deleveraging issues where, you know, the price, get so volatile and, and shorts and longs are having to pay each other off in certain, mm -hmm. depending on the situation. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you're basically in a short position, um, you know, you could see that get wiped out. Yeah, not, this is not for me. <laughs> okay, Matt, uh, with that, can you tell people where to find us, please? I can. So you can find us on our website at, um, uh, give me one second here. Uh, btcbutlers.com. You can also get us on Twitter uh, at btcbutlers. Our email is info at btcbutlers.com. Our DMs are also open. Um, and if you've enjoyed listening to this, uh, please like and subscribe on our YouTube channel, download it on whatever podcast platform you're using. Um, if you have stories or comments, anything you'd like to discuss with us for us to discuss on a future episode, please let us know either in the comments or through email or Twitter. Um, and then as far as Bitcoin butlers, we would love to help you implement best practices as a Bitcoin owner, whether that's buying your Bitcoin, storing it securely, setting up an inheritance plan for your Bitcoin and running your own node. Um, those are all things we can do. And uh, whether or not you own Bitcoin, we can help you uh, implement a sovereign inheritance plan, which will allow you to create a roadmap for your heirs um, that uh, will make things a lot easier when, when that time comes. So um, unless you got anything else, that's it for now. No, nope. thought that was great. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Bye.